Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Mary Roach on Fuzz. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Animals and Nature or Science and Medicine category for episode number 146 with Douglas Chadwick on Four-Fifths a Grizzly. This is Doug Chadwick, the author of Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. And this is Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Mary Roach is a best-selling author many times over. Those books include Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, Gulp, Adventures of the Alimentary Canal, and Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. If these titles alone don't get you, perhaps you can be swayed by her status as one of the wittiest and most thorough investigative storytellers in modern times. Her new book will no doubt end up on that bestseller list if it's not already. It's called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing terrific. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, thank you. You admit in the introduction that this book is based around the question, what is the proper course when nature breaks laws intended for people? What initially inspired this inquiry for you? Well, it was a couple of things. One of them, the thing that kind of cemented it for me was stumbling onto that very bizarre 1906 book entitled The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals, which detailed all these court cases and lawyers being assigned to represent animals and even insects. Uh, I have a case in the book that deals with caterpillars. (laughs) And uh, I just thought, well, you know, this is obviously not the way to go about it. The legal system is not (laughs) an effective way of solving conflicts between people and wildlife. Obviously, the laws are written for humans, not animals, and animals are just following their instinct. So uh, I, as a science writer, I thought, well, what does what does what does science bring to the table and and what are uh, what are some uh, better ways to handle this? You start with manslaughter and murder when animals kill humans. You enrolled in a five-day course organized by Wildlife Human Attack Response Training, or WART. Why do they exist, and what was a valuable lesson that you learned from WART? Well, WART is a one-week-long training session for it's almost entirely people who work for wildlife agencies. And those are the people who are called in to deal with conflicts between uh, people and wildlife, and in particular, when uh, an animal is a threat to public safety. And uh, this training uh, is, is, it's essentially like a forensics course for wildlife professionals. So when somebody is killed, mauled and killed by an animal, and typically in this country, it's a bear or a mountain lion, uh, uh, it, it's, it goes through how do you, first of all, figure out which species killed this person because what you have is a body uh, and some, sometimes some tracks, but often not even that. And so first, first looking at the body and the injuries and the wounds to determine what species, was it a human, was it a bear, was it a wolf? And then um, 
trying to establish linkage between the victim and the perpetrator. And that's something, you know, often a, an animal, you know, a, a trap will be set at the scene and an animal uh, captured. And, and the next, you know, the next step is to prove uh, sometimes by DNA, uh, sometimes otherwise, but um, to, to establish a link and to prove that that you do have in custody, as it were, the individual that uh, did the killing. And if not, then the suspect is released, which is, you know, there's a lot of parallels to um, crime procedures when a human kills a human. You dive deep on bear encounters, and we've obviously heard a lot of different advice over the years on what to do if you happen upon a bear, either in the wild or even in an urban setting. I work with a guy who believes that he won't be able to help himself but to run and find a tree to climb. Unless, Mary, he is pushing someone down in the process, he's a dead man. After discussing it with (laughs) experts, how would you handle such a bear encounter? Well, the things that they, the thing that I was told, I, I asked the specific question uh, to uh, uh, someone up at uh, British Columbia, where they have a lot of bears, way more bears than we have. And I said, "What is it? You know, what advice do you give to people?" And you, you sometimes hear, "Oh, that saying: if it's brown, lie down; if it's black, fight back." Meaning, brown bear versus you know, grizzly is a subspecies of brown bear uh, versus black bear, and that's not great advice because, hmm. for starters. Some uh, many black bears are brown, colored brown, and many brown bears are quite dark. So uh, you don't want to have to be standing there going, is that a brown bear or a black bear? I don't know. They say that you can look at the claws and figure it out. But if you're close enough to see the claws, uh, it's probably not going to be much help for you. So the thing that uh, the most important thing is to figure out, is this a, is this a predatory attack or a defensive bluff? And uh, with bears, it's it's typically uh, you you surprise them, startle them, they feel threatened, and they're just going to try to look big and scary and do a bluff charge, so kind of come at you, but not actually all the way to you. And and in that case, you your job is to not be a scary, not be scary, not be a threat. So to back away slowly and calmly, and just let that bear know that you're not a threat to it that you're uh, that you get the message and you're going to leave but not to run away it's especially important not to run away uh from a, a, a an animal that is a predator a true pre- like a, a cat is a true carnivore and it it kills to eat and it is focused on prey it, it can its attacks can be triggered by running away because it triggers this predator prey response where it's just it, you know if it's sort of eyeing you up, sizing you up, not sure what to do, and you run, it's just got a reflex to chase. And so the the last thing you want to do is run away from a cougar. That's an or, an- or a bear for that matter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's an animalistic instinct. We have two young kids and two dogs at home and the younger dog that is about a year old, he is very playful right now because of his age and our littlest kid, our five year old son, will sometimes not want our dog to lick him or play around with him. So we'll start to run away. And all that does is encourage the dog to run yeah. after him because he thinks it's a game. And I, I'm yes. guessing deep down, even with the predatory animals, they think of it as a, a sort of a cat and mouse game, if you will, if they see their potential yeah. prey start to uh, bolt like that. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's true. If you're on a mountain bike as well, like taking off might seem like the best thing to do, but um, with it, yeah, uh, with, and with a bear, uh, I mean, it's so rare that bears 
actually do attack people. What happens typically is like there's food in a tent or there's uh, you stumble on to a bear in the woods that's got a food source that it's cached, it's sort of half buried. And the bear thinks you're getting between me and my food and I don't want that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't know that, you know, you're not in fact interested in the half decomposed moose carcass that the <laughs> bear <laughs> feels very strongly about. So um, the, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's typically just protecting something it has, or it feels like you're going to take it away. So it's so, so very rare that a bear will actually stalk to kill someone. Uh, it just is a, um, a really unusual scenario. And, and often dogs get involved with the, you know, the dog smells the bear, the, you know, they see each other and those two kind of get engaged. And then the person steps in to kind of pull the animal away and the bear will redirect its attention onto the person. So sometimes um, there's a dog involved that, you know, typically there's some element of food that the bear is after, or the bear is trying to protect. Uh, and then uh, you get caught up in that and, and, or the dog. And that's typically what happens. Yeah. Speaking of bears trying to find food, who are the playfully named bear bitches and what do they show us about current efforts to keep bears away from highly populated areas in the mountains of Colorado, British Columbia, and elsewhere? Uh, the bear bitches are a couple of very, very effective um, human wildlife conflict folks in uh, uh, it's a ski resort in Colorado called Snowmass. And they uh, have taken it upon themselves to do a lot of outreach and education on the one hand, uh, like doing seminars at restaurants trying to explain to the whole staff, this is why it's important to keep that dumpster locked, that bear resistant container locked up. I know it's a pain to do that, to take that extra step. But what you may not realize is when bears get used to human food sources and that's all that they're getting and they teach their cubs that, um, they're, they're gonna get bolder and bolder and they'll start to get aggressive. And if they start to get aggressive, then they're gonna be uh, perceived as a threat to public safety and they'll be destroyed. So we're really, you know, they're doing, she, she makes it clear to people because sometimes the owner of the restaurant knows this. He's he or she's the one who bought the dumpster or the container, but the staff might not know. And so she went in and did uh, educational sessions in English and in Spanish for restaurant workers. And that has helped a lot. They call, they're called, uh, she and her partner are called the bear bitches because they are serious about the laws that exist both there and in neighboring Aspen, um, the laws that say, look, you've got to secure your compost and your garbage. And if you don't, this is the fine you'll pay. And, and sometimes there's not a lot of enforcement of those um, bear protecting laws, uh, but she will get into a dumpster and go through the you know, trash and see who's, who dumped this, you know, who's getting the fine. Because often if you've got multiple people using the same bear resistant dumpster, you can't prove who's the one who left it unlocked. If you've got a condo building with six condos and somebody didn't lock it up, well, how do you know who? And how do how do you prove that? But she will she will get in there, go through the trash, find an address, and say, "Look, you know you you're the one that did this." So uh, that's why pe people um, people have called them 
the bear bitches because they're serious about protecting bears. <laughs> uh, from bears, your focus shifts to India and animal crimes against humanity in India. What sorts of dangers do elephants pose to humans in India? Uh, well, 500 people a year uh, are killed by elephants in India. India is a very populous country, so that's part of why the numbers are high. But there's a, a significant amount of conflict up in the north where uh, elephants have traditionally migrated across the north of India. And their path gets obstructed sometimes by human encroachment and human development, um, housing developments, military installations, roadways. And when the elephants kind of get stuck in an area, I mean, uh, uh, they're, 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 they travel in groups and in herds and they eat a lot of food. And so they t often turn to crops that people are growing in villages, you know, uh, to subsistence crops that, you know, not, not, not selling it as a living, but just this is what we eat. This is what we grow. And so they, people get pretty upset. And so the elephants come in at night and people run out and do the wrong thing. They, they don't necessarily know how to deal with the elephants and people get trampled. So uh, I spent some time with a researcher from the Wildlife Institute of India, Dipanjan Naha, who travels uh, to some of these villages that are in these conflict areas and helps them set up elephant response teams who are people who are trained and knowing and that they know how to safely encourage elephants to uh, depart. So um, that is uh, just one of the, I, you know, I did uh, three chapters in India, but that was the uh, elephant chapter. This surprised me a little bit, but how is it that elephants get drunk there and what sorts of issues does this cause for humans? Mm, elephants, um, Surprisingly, to me anyway, enjoy getting drunk uh, and will take any opportunity to do that. Perhaps they just like the taste of the liquor. I'm not sure or, or if they enjoy getting tipsy, but the, uh, they, there's a homebrew that people make in the villages up in that part of India. And the elephants will get into that. So people uh, will bring it indoors to try to keep the elephants away. But the elephants don't see any reason not to knock down a wall to get to the liquor. <laughs> and they'll do that. And uh, if that happens uh, while people are in the house, you know, you literally have an elephant in the room. And that's uh, that's a dangerous situation. Yeah. And when they get drunk, I mean, do they become either unruly or incapable of uh, <laughs> maintaining coordination that can also cause some other problems, too, I'm guessing? Well, they, uh, they the, most elephants are pretty mellow drunk. Huh. They tend to – there was somebody published a paper on this. They tend to kind of wander off on their own, kind of sway back and forth. One, uh, one behavior is they kind of wrap their trunks around themselves. But there seems to be uh, a mean drunk. In, in any herd, there's, so, there's you know, an elephant that's going to be more aggressive. They're kind of like with people. Yeah. You know, some people are a mean drunk and other people just get mellow and tipsy. They tend to, for the most part, they'll just wander off, lie down and sleep it off. While elephant incidents in that part of the world tend to be accidental, leopard attacks are very intentional. Why might the 1918 Spanish flu be partially to blame for leopards having a hankering for humans? Well, that is a theory that was put forth by uh, Jim Corbett, who is a 
quite well-known hunter uh, back in that era. Uh, he uh, was the one who was brought in to track and kill a leopard that, to which many, many uh, human killings had been ascribed. Probably some exaggeration going on there, but over 100 kills was, the, was what people were claiming. Anyway, uh, Corvette wondered what, why it is that these leopards, because it, it, these leopards in particular in this region were stalking humans, and that isn't the case further south. Uh, the leopards are not going after people. You know, it, it is rare for a big cat to consider humans uh, part of the menu, um, but that was that is the case up in the, the Him this region of the Middle Himalaya where I was. His theory was that during the pandemic, so many people were dying so quickly that the usual funerary custom of bringing the body down to the Ganges for cremation wasn't done, that they were doing a more expedient ritual, which involved just sort of sort of pushing the body downhill toward the river, but not taking it all the way down. It's quite a steep climb down to the river. And his feeling was that perhaps, because a, a leopard will eat uh, carrion, you know, a, a carcass, a cadaver. So his theory was that the, since these bodies were all around, that the leopards developed sort of a taste for people, uh, that whether that's the case, uh, whether that's true or not, uh, I guess you'd have to ask the leopards. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's true. There are other things, as I discover in the book, other things that are going on in that region that have contributed. But that, but that may well be part of it. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, you heard the noises of someone being attacked by a leopard. What was that like? Uh, well, it sounded like that. It, uh, it was not that. Oh, thank goodness. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was late at night, and it really did have that sound. And um, in the morning, we were staying at, way up on a hill, high up on a hill. And rather than try to attempt to go down that path at night, um, we asked in the morning what had what had gone on. And I don't want to give the whole book away. I don't want to give True. the story away. But um, it was not, in fact, a leopard, but it was something equally surprising. Okay. Uh, what are droppings analyses and how have they helped us better understand non-human species? Uh, droppings analyses uh, was something that got rolling in the turn of the last century. And it was kind of a way for wildlife biologists to snoop on animals. Well, for one thing, to kind of get a sense of what their diet is, but also someone cleverly figured out that if you're trying to estimate the population of an animal in a certain area, uh, uh, it works better to go and count the number of droppings and work out a formula. You have to know how often that species typically craps in a day, you know, the defecation frequency. Um, but if you know that and you're good at uh, recognizing different species uh, dung, <laughs> you can work out uh you can try to work out what is the population in that area because it's pretty hard to count animals that are on the move in a certain area and also animals uh, that are stealthy, that stay out of sight. Uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to do an accurate count of them. So droppings analysis is one, one way to do that. You also covered killing and or harmful plants. Now, I'm not very fond of kidney beans or most legumes for that matter because they leave me feeling bloated. But when and how do kidney beans go from that to a harmful, if not lethal, threat to human consumption? <laughs> um, 
well, kidney beans. I mean, there are there are a couple of beans that are uh, that from which you can derive incredibly lethal toxins. Uh, uh, ricin and abrin are two of them. Kidney beans, though, uh, if you don't um, cook them for ten minutes at least, uh, you can you can get quite sick from them. And there was an epidemic. There's a they called it the white kidney bean incident in in, in Japan where someone went on television and suggested uh, grinding raw white kidney beans and just toasting them for three minutes and sprinkling them on food as a, as kind of a, um, a dietary fad that they were promoting. And uh, three minutes is not enough to uh, denature the toxins. So those people, there were a number of people ended up in the emergency room uh, from, from the beans. So that, that's, um, you definitely want to, your beans more than three minutes. <laughs> Noted. Now, where I live in Austin, Texas, Mary, we have a big grackle problem. Grackles are birds that are, if I can describe them accurately to you, they're like crows on crack who are about as vocally subtle as goats. Do I want all <laughs> grackles to die, Mary? Theoretically, yes, which is why crow bombing raised an eyebrow for me. What was crow bombing and did it work? Uh, I'm familiar with grackles and they're quite beautiful birds. Uh, I, I understand they may be quite vexing. Um, uh, crow bombing is pretty much what it sounds like. It was, uh, uh, a method back in the 19, for around thirties, forties, maybe through the, it, it went on for some time and it, it involved setting up strings of dynamite explosives in trees where uh, large flocks would roost. And when the flocks were out during the day, eating and doing the things they do, they would, um, people would string up these explosives and set them off after the birds had come back to roost. And uh, first of all, it's just an incredibly uh, cruel thing to do because far more of them were mutilated than were killed. And second, when you're dealing with blackbirds, crows, grackles, cowbirds, the populations are in the millions. So whatever, however many you kill isn't going to really dent the population. And it's certainly not going to resolve the problem that you're having. It doesn't, I mean, there, there's been um, research that was done on crow bombing and also on other methods of mass killing. And it doesn't really reduce the agricultural damage, the damage that you're trying to prevent uh, it doesn't it doesn't do that. And uh, it's just an awful thing to do. Why does the Federal Aviation or FAA consider white tailed deer the most hazardous wildlife to U.S. civil aircraft? Because it seems like a lot of different types of birds should be higher on the list than white tailed deer. Uh, well, uh, the heavier the animal or bird you strike, the more expensive the damage. So the deer, by nature of its size and weight causes far more damage to the aircraft. Uh, obviously, they're not hitting these deer while they're flying. This is coming in to the tarmac or leaving the tarmac or taxiing. Uh, deer will you know, wander in front of the plane. And, and when something is moving very quickly, it's difficult for an animal to calculate how much time it has to get out of the way because they evolved an ability to be pretty accurate with predators that they uh, 
have developed alongside of evolutionarily. And a, and a plane or a truck is not one of those. It's, it's a new development. And their calculations are off and they get hit and they cause a lot of damage to, um, to aircraft. I mean, small, you know, a small plane hitting a deer, uh, that is going to be a lot more damage than, say, a starling. <laughs> or even, a, you know, I mean, it, 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 a plane that's flying at altitude that hits a flock or that hits several Canada geese, obviously that's a, a scenario that uh, is not only causing damage to the plane, but could bring the plane down. And that's that's really where um, the concern is, not so much with the cost of the damage. So, you know, deer are not are not clearly not bringing planes down and, and causing them to crash, but most you know most bird strikes don't bring planes down. But there but there's a concern about it. Well, you talk about what to do if you encounter a deer or another animal unexpectedly in the middle of a roadway while you're driving fast in a car. This actually happened to me 25 years ago. I was driving through the hill country to Austin with a couple of buddies at night. And as the name hill country suggests, the road included a lot of twists and turns around the hills, which meant a lot of blind spots. Well, about 45 minutes from Austin, I'm going around a bend to the right at about 55 miles per hour and appearing out of nowhere, literally 45 to 50 feet in front of me in the middle of the road was an eight to 10 point buck. I started to hit my brakes, but knowing at that time that hitting your brakes into a larger animal can cause the nose of the car to dip and the consequences to become much more dire, I intuitively, yeah. said, uh, intuitively said out loud, fuck it, which my friends laughed about later, and hit the accelerator. We plowed into that buck who I hit on the driver's side and didn't even really lose control of the car, thankfully. Now, stopping at the gas station five miles up the road to examine the damage realizing the driver's side door wouldn't open and having to dukes of hazard out of the driver's side window to pick fur and flush out of the windshield <laughs> wipers and grill while seeing the dents where the antlers hit the car hood in the final moments. That was definitely something. But I bring all of that up to ask you this. For those that are less fortunate than me in a situation like that, why do vehicular encounters with animals typically end in human fatality? Well, um, it depends on the animal. That's a, a t the taller the animal, the more likely it is to, to be a fatal encounter because your car now is hitting the legs. So the torso and the head and the antlers, or in the case of, they call it with a moose, do they call those antlers? Antlers, yeah. The, they pin, it, it sort of cartwheels back over onto the hood, the windshield, and even with a tall animal, like a camel also, the roof. And now this comes crashing down and there's a lot of... Um, People break their necks. Uh, so, so if it's a tall animal, uh, that is the most dangerous of all. You know, a, a deer, um, like you said, you know, if the, the, you slam the brakes and the, the nose comes down and that, that's putting you more in the range of the legs, so the body's going to cartwheel onto the hood. And um, hopefully it's not going to you know, hit the windshield and the roof of the car. Hopefully the animal's not that tall. Um, so the, the – but the, the other – thing with deer is a lot of the people who are killed uh, in crashes, a lot of people who are deal, dead because of a deer in the road, it's not because they hit the deer, it's because they swerved mm. to avoid the deer and they went off the road, they hit a tree or they rolled over. So uh, it's it's pretty tough to, um, I mean, you're, you're probably safer just hitting the deer than swerving and, and risking um, hitting another car or hitting a tree. 
and and uh, but it, it's a tough call, you know, if it's a if it's a tall one like a moose or you just don't want a moose crashing through the windshield onto your head. Um, I mean, so in that case, I think I would swerve. But I think that the the key here is to uh, proceed with caution if you're <laughs> if you're driving at dusk when uh, deer tend to be in the road. Uh, and also the one tip somebody gave me is um, people tend to when a deer is in the road and then it runs across their eye follows that deer and frequently deer are in groups. And so the deer that they hit is the second or third deer that's Hmm. crossing behind and you, you're not, your, your attention is on that first deer. So that's um, something else to keep in mind. Yeah, no doubt about that. Mary, why did you look into uh, gene editing in the final chapter? And what did you learn about its potential for helping us manipulate a more cohesive existence with other species? Well, gene editing is uh, kind of the most cutting-edge approach to uh, animal birth control. Um, I mean, birth control, uh, there's various ways you can try to administer birth control to animals, and all of them are fairly challenging because animals are free-ranging. And, you know, to give them a pill on a regular basis is obviously not going to work, especially if they're roaming free. You know, sometimes animals on an island or you know, isolated geographical area that, that does work fairly well. Um, uh, gene editing is a, is a way and a gene drive. I mean, I, we don't have time to go in the details, but that's a, a way to alter the fertility uh, through by manipulating um, the genome. For example, you could create an, you, you may have heard of um, people attempting to make mosquitoes not deliver malaria. So you can edit uh, for for some invasive species. There's been efforts to create um, a version of them that only gives birth to males. So that's going to be that's going to serve your population pretty effectively. And it's something that would yeah, people are talking about it for invasive species control at this point. But it is kind of a futuristic version of birth control. That's that would be. Um, ideally used in an isolated population, like an invasive species that's killing all of the um, native wildlife. I think Florida is trying a version of that with mosquitoes. They just released a bunch of mosquitoes in the last year to uh, help control Uh the mosquito population. Yeah, I think I've I've heard of efforts also with ticks on that. There's an island where Mm -hmm. they're, uh, I think, trying to, eradicate Lyme um, by working with the genome of the tick there, I think, something like that. But yeah, it's it's so far something that's been, um, uh, it, it's gone farthest along, I should say, with, with insects. And I, and I think with <laughs> I think insects, you're going to get the least pushback from the public because mm-hmm. I think there's very few people who want to get involved uh, on behalf of mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, it's like trying to step in to defend scorpions or hornets or something. It just doesn't seem worth it for animals that are such big a-holes to us to begin with. All right, last question, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I love your style. My wife and I agree that you are one of the wittiest and most thorough investigative storytellers in modern times. I'm also a big sucker of how good you are with transitions from one chapter to the next. Who are some <laughs> oh, of your... thank you. My, my pleasure. Who are some of your most impactful writing influences i think when i first got started writing um two authors that come to mind is somebody who i just read them and i thought 
I would love to be able to, to combine research and writing this way, you know, and do that in a fresh way. Um, and those are Bill Bryson and Susan Orlean. Hmm. They're both, and they, I still read, yeah, whatever they write. That makes me so happy. I'm speaking with Susan next week on, on animals. So, Oh, you are. Well, tell her hello. Uh, I'm, I ha- I'm looking forward to reading that. I honestly couldn't read it now uh, because I'm, I'd be so, you know, I'm such a fan of her writing and her reporting for that matter that I just would, you know, if I read it now, I think, oh, why did I even bother writing about animals? Because Susan Orlean's done it. You know, I, I, so it's, it's only now that my book is out and I can start to relax. I'm going to look forward to reading on animals. That's great. It, she's very funny too. You'll have a great time talking to her. Can't wait. And I can only imagine there are a number of young writers out there who look to you as a major influence in what it is that they're trying to do as well. She is Mary Roach, a best-selling author many times over. Her newest book will no doubt end up on bestseller lists as well if it's not already. It's called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Oh, thank you. It It was so much fun. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Trey. Join me next time when I speak with writer and editor Lori Wooliver on Bourdain, the definitive oral biography. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>